The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Because my preaching schedule is a little bit erratic for the next month or two, instead of just continuing on in the Luke series, we're right now at a place in the book of Luke in chapter 21 where we get into what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's a rather extended teaching on the end times, talking about when Jesus returns. And so instead of doing one message in it and then skipping a couple weeks and doing another message, I'm sort of waiting until we can tackle that chapter in Luke uh, all together sequentially within a few weeks. And so during the summer, you'll see me sort of preaching on various topics. And so today I want to look at the book of Judges, chapter 6. Verses 1 through 16, this story of Gideon's calling. And so let's take a look at that. The title of the message is a new name. It's a little bit of a longer passage than we really typically read on a scripture reading. But let's take a look at the story of Gideon and how God calls him into his service. Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord for seven years. He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand a bit of what our identity is by looking at the way you approached Gideon that day in that wine press to call him into your service and to give him a name 
that he felt wasn't warranted. Open our eyes to see ourselves the way you see us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. These are the top baby names so far in 2016. Um, we're still into the year, so it, this list may change. On the boy side, you have Liam, Noah, Ethan, Mason, Lucas, Oliver, Aiden, Logan, James, and Elijah. On the girl side, you have Liam, I mean Emma, Olivia, Ava, Sophia, Isabella, Maya, Charlotte, Harper, interestingly, Amelia, and Abigail. Um, it's interesting, you know, throughout most of history, names were given to babies either based on some kind of family naming tradition or by the meaning of the name. Like we lived in Kenya for five years, and in the tribe where we were working, you were named based on the time of day that you were born. Um, in our day, it seems like in modern America, all of that has sort of gone out the door. Uh, parents today typically will name their children simply on how the name sounds. Uh, and so it's not uncommon in America today to find an Asian child with an Irish name or an Irish child with a German name, and on and on it goes. Uh, names become trendy based on what popular celebrities are naming their children nowadays. Uh, parents also pick names that are unique. So in this crowded sea of children, they want their child to stand out in the classroom. So it's not uncommon for parents to try to find a really unique name, like Apple or North or something like that, right? Um, but in the Bible, um, children were named because of the meaning of that name. It was like giving that child a blessing, a destiny, an identity. In fact, um, to the Israelites, your name represented the essence of who you were. It revealed something vital about you, about your destiny in life. It's interesting, in the Bible, we're actually given many different names of God himself. And it seems like each one of these names was given to us to reveal a particular aspect of his character. Often when God decides to do a new work, he will reveal a new name that was never known before to us to accompany that work. Uh, when in our first Sunday here in Wheeling, I preached about the calling of Moses. And when God called Moses to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites out of slavery, he revealed at that time at the burning bush the name Yahweh, which means literally translated the I Am, the one who has eternally existed and the one who is with his people. At the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we were given the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. I give you my Son to dwell among you, and to reveal that work that I am doing, I give you a new name that I bear, which is Emmanuel, God with you. It's interesting, in Revelation 19, the Apostle John sees this vision of Jesus on a white horse, 
riding into battle as a conquering king to once and for all destroy all of his enemies. And what we're told in Revelation 19.12 is this. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. It's really interesting, isn't it? It seems like in that final act of redemption, the final chapter of history, there is one final name of Jesus that is yet to be revealed. And we're not even sure if Jesus will ever reveal that name to us. Maybe it will eternally be his secret. We don't know. But if it follows the pattern of the rest of redemptive history, it's very likely that when Jesus comes as a conquering king, he will reveal a final name that he bears. The Bible is also filled with people who are given new names by God. They have a birth name, but then God gives them a name. Abram's name was changed to Abraham, which means father of many. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means may God prevail. Simon's name was changed to Peter, the rock. Each of these new names represented a new identity that God was giving to them, a new calling, a new destiny for their lives. And I want to look in this message this morning a little more closely at this idea of being given a new name. I want to do it by looking at the story of this guy named Gideon, who was alive during a period known as the era of the Judges. The book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. As you may know, Joshua took the place of Moses when Moses died. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness under Joshua's leadership, the Israelites were finally able to enter under Moses' leadership. They were finally able to enter the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And so basically for many decades, Israel was under the protective care of good leadership by first Moses and then Joshua. But this is what happens. After Joshua dies, a leadership vacuum is created during what is known as the era of the judges. It's the end of the good leadership. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, we find these words, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered for, to their fathers, another generation grew up who, neither, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now this period is marked by these repeated cycles of Israel turning their backs on God and then being punished and then repenting and returning to God, and then sinning all over again. It's also a time when Israel is under constant attack by the many nations that they're surrounded by. Whether it's the Amorites or the Perizzites, or whether it's the Philistines, or here the Midianites and the Amalekites. And during this time, one flawed leader after another rises up to lead Israel into battle. In the days of Gideon, the Israelites were harassed by uh, these people from the east, these Midianites and Amalekites. What's interesting about this particular period is that in a lot of other times, like with the Philistines, when they would attack Israel, it was for the purpose of conquest. They wanted the land 
that the Israelites were living in because it was actually good land. It was good farmland. But with these Midianites and Amalekites, they were just pure evil. They didn't want to take over their land, their farms. They just wanted to beat them up and harass them. So whenever harvest time would come, they would show up with their armies. And they would kill them and take their fields and burn their crops. And they would kill all of their livestock. It became so unbearable that the Israelites eventually gave up and left their houses. And like animals, they fled into the mountains and into caves. They lived like dogs to just survive another day from their enemies. It is in this time period that God appears to Gideon, who is threshing wheat. Now, I don't know if you know what threshing wheat is, but threshing wheat is you, you take a bundle of the wheat you harvest, you basically whack it against something hard like the ground. And what you're doing is you're basically trying to shake the edible grain away from the stalk and cause the chaff, the unedible part, the inedible part to uh, fall away to the wayside. The next aspect of, it, of uh, harvesting is you, you, you toss that stuff you've unsettled into the air so that all that chaff will blow in the wind. So basically, that's the process known as winnowing. So the bottom line is when you're threshing, you want to do it in a wide open space where the wind is blowing so that you can get the edible grain out of what you've harvested. But Gideon is threshing in a wine press. Now, a wine press in those days was basically just a hole in the ground carved into a big rock, a rocky surface, where people could basically press the grapes in order to make a batch of wine. So Gideon is basically threshing his wheat in a hole in the ground in order to hide from the Midianites and the Amalekites because, frankly, Gideon is a coward. He's terrified. He's like a frightened, cornered animal. This is the picture that you need to have of Gideon, okay? This is the scene that you have to picture. In order to understand how comical or even outright cruel it seems when God approaches Gideon hiding in this hole in the wall, in the, fo- in the floor, with the words, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Huh? Who? Where? (laughs) Where's the warrior? Where's the warrior? Sadly, Gideon's response is not one of faith. It's of doubt and disbelief. First, Gideon finds it hard to believe that God is actually with him. In verse 13, he says, But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. We heard those stories from our father, from our grandfathers, of these mighty acts of God, how he brought them out of Egypt. But those days are long gone. God has abandoned us. But God reassures him in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand, and I not sending you. In other words, whatever you have, whatever's right before you, whatever strength you have, Gideon, go, because I am with you. 
God will be by your side. But Gideon replies in verse 15, But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Basically, Gideon is saying to God, I come from the wimpiest clan in Israel. And among this sad, sorry group of people, I am the biggest wimp. In other words, I am uber wimp, okay? I am not this mighty warrior that you're claiming that I am. If ever there was a mighty warrior within the heart of Gideon, the brutal world in which he was living had basically beat it out of him. That's not me. You've got the wrong guy. Find someone else. It's interesting, Gideon is not alone in reacting this way when God gives people new names and calls them to a new purpose in life. Abraham was told at the age of 99, childless, that his new name would be Abraham, no longer Abram, that he would be the father of many nations. It's interesting that on hearing this news, this elderly man laughed. (laughs) He couldn't control himself. He and his wife Sarah began to laugh. Genesis 17, 17 says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? (laughs) You could be sympathetic to his skepticism, right? Remember Moses when I preached about that in our first service here in the sanctuary? When God called him in Exodus chapter 4, verse 13, Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Not me. I'm not fit for this. I'm not your messenger. There's a guy, a teacher named John Eldridge, and he works primarily with men. He leads a men's ministry, does these boot camps with them. Um, And he In these boot camps that he does with men, he talks about this wound that almost every man carries underneath the facade of an ego, of masculinity, machismo. And although he's writing to men, I think it's applicable to women as well. Eldridge writes, every man carries a wound. I have never met a man without one. No matter how good your life may have seemed to you, You live in a broken world full of broken people. Your mother and father, no matter how wonderful, couldn't have been perfect. She is a daughter of Eve and he a son of Adam. So there is no crossing through this country without taking a wound. And every wound, whether it's assaultive or passive, delivers with it a message. The message feels final and true, absolutely true, because it's delivered with such force. Our reaction is, To it shapes our personality in very significant ways. From that flows the false self. Most of the men you meet are living out of a false self, a pose, which is directly related to his wound. Let me try to make this clear. The message delivered with my wound, my father disappearing into his own battles, was simply this. You are on your own, John. There is no one in your corner. No one to show you the way, and above all, no one to tell you if you are or not or are not a man. The core question of your soul has no answer, and you can never get one. 
One particular Christian writer talks about his earliest memory of his wound that was inflicted on him when he was six or seven years old. He was in his apartment playing with toy soldiers when one of them accidentally got flung out of his hand and hit his father in the face who was sleeping in the same room. When his father awoke with a very angry look on his face and told his son to come to him. Son is scared, but his father reassured him and said, I'm not going to hurt you. Come over here. So trusting his father, he went, this little boy went to his father. And totally out of the blue, surprised, his father slapped him really hard across the face. And this Christian writer writes, as the pain and fear mixed together with the shock of his anger, I took the wound. The handprint on my cheek eventually faded. The arrow he put into my heart, the heart of a little boy who loved his father enough to trust him at his word, took longer, much longer to dislodge. And so he began this journey of abuse. The very one that ought to be protecting him, loving him, became an abuser. And I suspect that that might be your story here as well. A story of abuse by the very ones that you trusted or loved. Or for you, maybe you never really experienced that abuse. Maybe for you, the wounds were more passive. Of a mother or father who never gave you the affirmation or approval that you craved so desperately from them. No matter how hard you tried, what kind of report cards you brought home, no matter what accomplishments you did in athletics, there was never a pat on the back. There was never the words, I'm so proud of you, son. I love you. Or maybe it wasn't even your parents. Maybe your wound comes from a trusted friend or even a pastor or a church that you trusted. Gideon says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And I want to say this. It's possible to go through your entire life never acknowledging the wounds that you carry in your heart. I want to ask you, how self-aware are you of the wounds that you carry in your life? What are you compensating for that you might not even realize? I realize for myself, one of the ways that my wound is revealed in my own life is the way I can mercilessly cut myself down and beat myself up when I make even the smallest, most innocent mistakes. That's why I told you, one of the things that it's very difficult for me to do is listen to my own sermon audio on the podcast. Because if I hear one grammatical error, I crucify myself. And I think, you are a public embarrassment. (laughs) Honestly. I replay that error over and over again in my head and say, how could you? How does your wound reveal itself? Maybe it's in a hyper-competitive spirit in which you see everyone else as the competition that needs to be beaten. 
Or maybe it's in your overachieving workaholic drive to never slow down, never stop, but always be achieving. Maybe it's in addictions that you use to drown that emptiness and the disappointment of life. Maybe it's in your inability to be emotionally vulnerable with your spouse or with your children. You're perpetuating the legacy that your parents handed down to you. Because the truth is, even for you, it's not easy to put your arms around your child and say, I'm so proud of you. I love you. It feels too risky. It feels too vulnerable. In the 2015 movie Creed, which is the latest in this Rocky series, that probably should have died a long time ago, but just keeps going. Um, This one is actually a pretty good movie, though, I think. It tells the story of Adonis Johnson Creed, who it turns out is the illegitimate son of the championship boxer Apollo Creed. And it turns out that he was born as a result of a brief affair that Creed had during a difficult time in his marriage. So he was born out of wedlock, illegitimate. And as an adult, Adonis Johnson becomes a boxer too, like his father. But he refuses to wear his father's name, Creed. He could leverage that name because his father was famous. And he could definitely have an advantage by using the name Creed as an up-and-coming boxer. But he doesn't want that name. He wants to prove that he's his own man, that he could do it without his father's reputation. Um... Finally, Johnson gets his big break when he gets the opportunity to fight this guy, Ricky Conlon, who is the light heavyweight championship champion of the world. And in this title fight, as the fight progresses, it becomes very clear that Johnson is outmatched by Conlon. He's not going to win this fight. In fact, his face eventually becomes a bloody mess. And toward the championship rounds, His trainer, Rocky, wants to stop the fight. He realizes this is not going to end well. And he says to Adonis, I should have stopped the fight with your father. I'm stopping this one now. Now up to this point, it seems like the entire plot of this movie is about a man that is trying to rise above the shadow of his father, his famous father, in order to be his own man. But he begs Rocky, his trainer, not to stop the fight. And Adonis finally reveals what has been driving him his entire life. He shouts back at Rocky, Don't, okay? Let me finish. I've got to prove it. And Rocky responds, Prove what? And with tears in his eyes, Adonis shouts back, I'm not a mistake. I'm not a mistake. There it is. The wound. The wound. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a loser. I'm a fool. None of us should be surprised that God chooses men like Gideon to lead his people in the most critical moments because God has a funny habit of calling people who feel utterly unqualified to do what is asked of them. Abraham, 
Jacob, Moses. It really feels like God is scraping the bottom of the barrel when he picks these men. Remember when he chose David to be one of the greatest kings of Israel? His own father, Jesse, didn't even include him in the roster, right? The prophet Samuel says, bring all your sons before me. He goes, there you go. And he's going to each one. He goes, not him, not him, not him. And there's, just this, there's this awkward moment where I was like, is this really all your sons? Because I swear this is the house God told me to come to, to anoint the next king. And he goes, this is all my sons. I, I don't have any other sons. And he goes, except for the kid that's watching the sheep. And so Samuel says, you have another son? We're not going to move until you get him. So they get this little boy running. <laughs> yeah, he goes, that's the one. That's the king. And everyone is in disbelief going, really? Him? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God intentionally uses ones that seem the least qualified so that the focus will not be on the messenger, but on the message and the one who has sent it. It's interesting to me that God calls Gideon a mighty warrior before he actually becomes one. If you read further in the story, he actually becomes a mighty warrior, doesn't he? In fact, some of the greatest military exploits recorded in Israel's history will be under Gideon's generalship. He becomes an awesome warrior. But at the point where he's called a mighty warrior, he is a cowardly farmer hiding in a hole. But God could see beyond the present to see what Gideon would become. To believe in our new name is to see ourselves as God sees us. Now, as you're hearing all this talk about a new name, I think you may be getting a little confused and you're going like, are you actually saying that God is literally going to give me a new name? And what I want to say is, he may. He may. And that might be something that you are invited to pray about. What is my new name, Lord? Is there one that you want to bestow to me? But even if God doesn't give you a literal new name. What I am talking about when I'm talking about this idea of a new name is to believe by faith in the new identity that you've been given because of Jesus Christ. To allow your worth to be completely defined by his love for you and not the wounds that you bear in life. I've shared with you this quote from Philip Yancey before, but it says, sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life, whether it's your wife, father, boss, etc., thinks you are. How would my life change if I truly believe the Bible's astounding words about God's love for me? If I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees? In the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe plays this Roman general who is a victim of a coup that occurs. Uh, against the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, that he serves. And in the aftermath of his, this coup, uh, his family is killed, and he is sold into slavery, and eventually becomes a gladiator. 
And like all other anonymous, anonymous men fighting in their, this gladiator's arena for their lives, uh, he is only referred to as gladiator. That's his name now, gladiator. And that's what he's called throughout the early part of the movie. As a gladiator, he is a slave. He exists only for the entertainment of others. But underneath his gladiator's armor, he has never forgotten who he actually is, his true identity. And one of the most dramatic scenes in the movie, he removes his gladiator's helmet to reveal his face to the crowd and show everyone that he is the famous general that led the Roman legions into battle. And he says one of the most famous lines in the movie that when I first heard it sent shivers down my spine is he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commanders of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife. He says, you have tried to make me this slave, this anonymous slave, but I am actually a conquering general. I am Maximus. G.K. Chesterton says, every man has forgotten who he is. We are all under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. Through the gospel, we need God to speak to us about who we truly are because we have all forgotten. We are ones who are loved, ones for whom Christ has died in order that we might be saved. And I think the truth is this. A lot of us struggle to receive this love and affirmation that God wants to give to us behind a, a false humility that is actually just pride and unbelief in disguise. I think one of the greatest expressions of faith is to believe the things that the Bible tells us about ourselves, that we are loved, that we are treasured more than we could ever imagine by the God who created us and gave his son for us. Here's the truth. In our brokenness, we look to everyone else to give us our name, but we need to hear the name that God gives us. Amen? I told you earlier that the calling of Gideon as mighty warrior seemed almost comical, if not outright cruel, as if God was making fun of him, mocking him. It's interesting that often in this new name that God gives us, God takes us right back to that place of our wound. Hiding in that hole in the ground, feeling abandoned by God, I think that issue of courage was probably the last thing that Gideon wanted to be reminded of. It must have stung like an insult. Mighty warrior. Yeah, right. Abraham laughed when he got his new name. At age 99, when you go to Abraham and Sarah's house for dinner party, there's one topic you don't talk about. It's children. Because they were infertile. And it was like an open sore. You don't go there. You don't talk about how your kid got into the University of Jerusalem. It's getting a PhD in Hebrew studies, you know? <laughs> or animal sacrifice or something like that, right? <laughs> so it must have sounded like a cruel joke to Abraham. I changed your name to Abraham, father of many nations. 
when Jesus first called his disciple Simon Peter, I almost imagine that the other disciples couldn't contain an uncontrollable laugh. You know, like, him, Simon, the rock? That's a good one, Jesus. That's a good one. Because the best words to describe Peter up to that point were words like rash, unwise, overconfident, low impulse control, ADHD, okay? The guy had no filters. He had no self-awareness. He was the most unstable of all the disciples. Oh, even if everyone abandons you, I will never abandon you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are the rock, Petros. I almost wonder if there was a tinge of embarrassment or pain when Jesus called Peter that. Are you making fun of me right now, Jesus? This is a joke? Of all the people that God could have chosen to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, why Moses? Why Moses? I thought about that. In his younger years, there might have been a time when Moses actually thought he was the chosen one because his story was pretty spectacular, right? Of all the babies killed in that season, he was the one that was spared. And as a Jew, he grew up as a prince of Egypt in the court of Pharaoh. So it wouldn't have been surprising if at some point he thought he was the chosen one. But those dreams ended with the murder of an Egyptian and Moses running away, terrified for his life in the desert. That was Moses at 40. For the next 40 years, Moses would stay in that desert, tending sheep, trying to forget his past. And now, as a broken man in his 80s, God was telling Moses, I'm sending you right back to the place of your humiliation, of your greatest fears. I'm bringing you back to your wound, the place of defeat and humiliation. Why does God do this? It's not out of cruelty, but it is out of his desire to heal our wounds to redeem our past. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You see, being given a name is not only about being given a new identity, it's about being given a new mission, a new purpose in life. Mighty warrior, I am going to use you to defeat Israel's enemies. In other words, God often delivers us from our past not only to heal us, but to redeem us to be used for his glory. And those very places of pain in our lives are often the very things that God is going to use to minister to others in our lives. Let's pray. In the book of Revelation, there's this letter from Jesus given to the seven churches in Asia. And in one of the letters, he writes to this church in Pergamum. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, we find these somewhat cryptic but interesting promise that he gives to these Christians in Pergamum. 
He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. What a wonderful promise. To those who overcome, I'm going to give each of you this white stone with a new name written on it that only you know. That reveals how I see you, who you are in Jesus Christ. We're going to come to this Lord's table in just a minute and take part in this communion. But before we do, can I just invite you to a time of response based on what you're hearing this morning? Why don't I ask you to think about what are the wounds that you carry in your life? And how are those wounds exposed in your life? Um, What are the scars that you bear? What is the new name that God wants to give to you because of his love for you? What are those things that you find absolutely impossible to believe about yourself that God wants to bestow to you? It's an act of faith to believe in a new name. Because like Gideon, says, I'm not that guy that you're calling me. I'm not a mighty warrior. And I think with a smile, God is in essence saying, you're not that guy right now. But I know the next chapter of your life, Gideon. I know what through my presence in your life you can become. Mighty warrior. Lead my armies. Lead my people into battle. And I will fight them for you. And I will give you the victory. Can I just invite you to a moment of meditation on that truth? And our worship team, before we go into communion, is going to lead us in a song of response, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Let's pray.